Uh, one of my favorite commercials, I don't know if you see them, is, is the, uh, it's the uh, Farmer's Insurance. The Farmer's Insurance. They've got the Hall of Claims. Have you seen those commercials? Like the craziest claims that, that, that uh, Farmer's has paid out on. So there's one of those stories where there's a guy and he's got two dogs and he's out playing with the dogs. They're playing fetch or whatever. And the dogs see a squirrel. And they start chasing that squirrel. They chase it into the neighbor's yard. And that squirrel's like, what am I going to do? And that squirrel jumps in the engine compartment of, a, of the neighbor's car. And what do those dogs do? They start chewing that car apart. They take the bumper off. They're putting scratches all over the car. Farmers, their thing is, yep, we covered that. We got you covered. There was another one where there was a lady, and maybe you can put yourself in the shoes where she goes out and gets dinner and brings it home, and as she's grabbing all the bags out of her car, she, this is terrible, this is horrible, she dropped a bag of curly fries. Can you believe that? She drops a bag of curly fries, and she's like, oh, well, they're down on the ground. She left them there. Now, that's not the part that farmers covers. It gets better than this, right? So she drops the curly fries, goes inside, forgets about them, goes out the next day and gets in her car and drives to work. And she's like, man, my car's driving funny. The little check engine light comes on. She takes the car into the mechanic. The mechanic says, hey, uh, hey did you have any curly fries recently? She's like, well, yeah, I did. Well, apparently a mouse took all those curly fries, took them up into the engine compartment, and then started chewing through wires and left the curly fries in the engine, causing all sorts of problems with the car. Farmer's insurance, we got you covered. Here's my favorite one. There's the dude that bought the brand new 4x4 truck. You know the truck? Can you picture it? The big old honking thing. And he's all proud of his truck, so he spends all day washing and waxing that thing. And he's like, yeah, this is great. Drives up to the mountains. He's going to go hiking or do some hunting or whatever. He parks his truck. He goes out. He does his thing. He comes back hours later. And there are four wild horses licking and biting that truck all over the place. Like scratches, like, like, like all over the place. There's these, these horses chewing this thing apart. What he learned is when he was going to get some wax for his truck, he's like, hmm, that one that smells like banana is probably a really good one. Well, little did he know that if you waxed your car with something that smells like bananas, horses are attracted to bananas, and they will destroy your truck. Farmer's insurance, though, we got you covered. Now, we like that idea of farmer's insurance, right? We like that idea that when we face something bad that happens to us, whether it is intentional or not, we like this idea that there's somebody who says, hey, we got you covered. We got your back. We'll take care of things. And we put our trust, we put our confidence in our insurance coverage. And it goes beyond that, though. We, as people, we put our confidence and our trust in all sorts of things. We put it into our insurance company. We put it into our savings account. We put it into our accomplishments, our abilities, our family. We put our confidence in a lot of different things. But can we acknowledge that sometimes, sometimes the things that we put our trust in, sometimes we put our trust in the wrong things. Like there was a guy who was living in Georgia, and he's like, hey, I want, I want to buy a barometer. You know what a barometer is? It, it tests the, the, the atmospheric pressure, so you can kind of predict what the weather's going to be. So he's like, sweet, I want this barometer. He brings the barometer home, he pulls it out, and the needle points to a hurricane, and he's like, what? 
He starts shaking the thing, hitting on the uh, control art, delete, restart, trying to restart this thing. Why isn't this thing working? A needle points to Hurricane. He's like, ah, this is dumb. Throws it down. He writes this scathing letter to the company. Why did, why did you sell this horrible item? It doesn't even work. He gets up the next morning. He drives to work. He mails that letter, and he comes home and finds a barometer is gone as well as his house. Sure enough, there was a hurricane that came through, and everything was gone, right? Sometimes we're like that guy, and we trust the wrong thing. For example, we might trust a politician who comes in and says, hey, I'm going to fix everything and everything's going to be good. And then we find out, no, they just kind of do the status quo like most politicians. Sometimes we trust the salesperson. The salesperson says, hey, this this gadget will revolutionize your life. Everything's going to be different. And then you get home and you find that gadget's really good at collecting dust on a shelf, right? Sometimes you put your trust in the person that says the right thing, that says, I love you, I'm going to take care of you. And then you find out that they were deceitful and left nothing but a bunch of broken lies in their path. Yeah, sometimes we put our faith and our trust in the wrong thing. But what about, what about when it turns to our faith in God? Like we, we long for security. We long to know that we're good with God. We want to know, hey, hey, things are good between us, right? God, you're not mad at me. You're not going to be, be, be harsh on me. And we long for that. And sometimes we put our trust in something not right. We want to know that we're good. And so, so sometimes we put our trust in what I would define as functional saviors. This is, this is, this is where we still believe in God. We still love God. But on a practical level, Most of us will struggle with trusting in things other than God for our security with him. These things might be, oftentimes we put our trust in our church. Well, well God, I go to church. I go to church, therefore, God, you've got to bless me. You've got to take care of me, right? Well, God, well, God, do you know how well I know scripture? I've memorized like five verses, God. I've read it like three times this year. God, you've got to take care of me because I, I know your word. God, do you know how long I've been a Christian? Of course God's going to take care of me. Well, God, I've, I've been, to, I've been to, to Bible college. God, do you know the family connections I have? God, I serve. I'm in a leadership role at church. And how many of us are going to be honest, at times in our life, we'll say, I'm good with God because of X, Y, Z. And this is where it is a a dangerous thing. Because even though we love God, even though we know the Sunday school answer that he's the solution, our practical human nature will often be to take our eyes off of him and onto these functional saviors that we have a little bit more control over, a little bit way to manipulate the outcome. Uh, The past couple of months, we've been in a series that we're calling The Story, where we're trying to grasp. Sometimes we can look at the Bible and we're like, man, there's all these stories, there's all these commands, there's all these different books, like, like, and you almost can look at it being like there's this disjointed bunch of things thrown together. But we wanted to take this time this year to look at the whole of the Bible to see that every story, every command, every character all points to one bigger story. 
A story that's not about us. A story about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We have been in this series for a while. We saw that God has established the nation of Israel as his people. He's given them the promised land. They've entered into this land that they get to have as their own. We saw the last couple of weeks where through King David and King Solomon, Israel's now entered into the golden era of them as a nation. They've got economic prosperity. They are, they are excelling spiritually. They've done well uh, uh, in all these different ways. But we saw last week there was a problem. Because Solomon, he loved God. He loved God. But through a number of, of small, subtle compromises, small, subtle sins, little things that weren't that big of a deal, Scripture says that his heart turned from the Lord, and he allowed those things to drift his heart away from God. And as, as a result of that, God's going to divide the nation. He's going to cause the northern kingdom, it's going to be called Israel. This is ten tribes. This is going to be ruled by one of uh, Solomon's servants. And then you've got the southern kingdom, which is one kingdom. They're going to be one tribe. They're going to be called Judah. And they're going to be uh, ruled by Solomon's son. And once we get to this point, the next 200 plus years in the story of Israel, it's this continual decline where the people of God, the kings, the leaders, they continue to abandon the Lord. They don't trust the Lord. They trust in all these other things. And as they do that, they're driving the people further and further away from God. Now, there were a couple of good kings along the way, kings who did things well, but the general pattern is that most of these kings were evil, and Israel just continued to decline and decline and fall further and further away from God. Now, God, this is his people. God loves his people. And so out of love, God sends the prophets. He sends all these prophets to warn them, to say, hey, listen, if you don't return to God and trust God fully, you're going to suffer some consequences. You're going to be driven from the land, and you're going to be put into captivity. God, in his grace, is trying to warn them. Now, in this period of time where Israel's on the decline, there are, are hundreds of prophets. A big portion of our Old Testament is rooted in the prophets. We're going to condense all of those prophets into one message today. The prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet where the northern kingdom of Israel, because they have continued to abandon God and refuse to listen to the other prophets, they've already been kicked out of the land. They're already in captivity by Assyria. And here's Jeremiah coming to the southern kingdom to say, listen up, guys. If we don't change our ways, if we don't turn back to the Lord and trust him wholeheartedly, the same thing's going to happen to us. We're going to lose the land, and we're going to be sent into captivity. Now, if you've been around Restoration Church for a while, one of the things you might have known about me, I'm a bit of an optimist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, half, I'm a half glass full kind of guy. Like, I bleed joy, and I love it. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. When there's t I hate tension. When there's tension and uncertainty, like, I'm trying to get through the middle of it. We've got to find some good out of this. We've got to figure out some solutions. I always find the ability to find good in people and situations no matter what we're dealing with. I believe things are going to work out. 
I think I may have the gift of faith to see the positive. And this is why I love teaching at VBS this past week, because, man, those kids, they're fun. The energy, the, the joy that I get to, to, to share. But I'll tell you what. Every afternoon when I came to this passage, man, it put me in such a funk. This was a, this was a hard sermon to write. Because this is not a hope-filled passage. This is not a passage that we're going to put a little bow on it and say, look how good it is. No, God's patience is running thin with his people. And this is essentially God's last-ditch effort to try and awaken his people up. But I think God already knows. They're not going to listen. They haven't listened for all this time. They're not going to listen as well. So because this is such a heavy passage, I'm going to ask you before we jump in to do two things. Two things I want, to, I want to say about this passage. Number one, when you look at Jeremiah chapter 7, our text, verse 2, God instructs Jeremiah, and this is what he says. He says, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word. I want you to hear that. This message is to the people of God. This message is to believers, to, to Christians. And so let me say, listen, if you are an unbeliever today, if you are not a part of Restoration Church, man, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I'm honored that you're here. I want you to come and be able to explore Jesus, explore faith, explore Restoration Church. Man, you are, are, are welcomed here. But this passage today is written to the Christians. It's written to believers. It's written to the church. It's written to us. Because sometimes... We as Christians, sometimes we get a little hypocritical, and we need a good kick in the pants. See, the people of Jeremiah's day, they are very much like the people of God in our day. In our day. There's not much difference between them and us. Well, we might not worship the same idols. We have the same problems where we put our trust in ourselves and in things rather than God. And so we need to understand this message is not a message for them. This message is a message for us in this room today. The second thing I'm going to ask you this morning is would you open up your heart and mind and actually consider that this message isn't for the church but this message is for you and me and every one of us that perhaps God wants to speak to us. Now, I'll be honest. I think I might be the king of self-justification because I can sit and I can read a passage like this and I can think that doesn't apply to me. I'm special. I I'm good. And I begin to think, well, you know who needs to hear this message? This, my friend needs to hear this message. Or that church as it is is faithful. They're the ones that need to hear this. We would be completely ignorant if we think that we are better than the people of God in Jeremiah's day. None of us, none of us are strong enough to stand on our own. So I'm asking you this morning to open up your heart, to open up your mind. And perhaps God has a message for us as a church to make us stronger, to allow us to have a greater impact in our families, in our lives, and the world around us. Jeremiah chapter 7, it is called the, the temple message. This is a, a warning that God is giving to the people of God of impending judgment and captivity unless they return to the Lord. 
And we're going to start, I want us to see, first and foremost, I want us to see the issues that God has with his people. Three issues. Number one, the first thing he has is they were trusting in the wrong things for their security. I mean, here's what verse four says. He says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Now, the people of Judah, the the nation of Judah, they had the city of Jerusalem. And within the city of Jerusalem, that's where they built the temple. And the temple was a place where God resided on the earth. The temple was that special place where God communed with man. And so the people of God are thinking, you know, I know God's mad at us. I know, I know we haven't been doing everything just right, but come on, we, we got the temple. There's no way God's going to destroy us and destroy our city because we got the temple. This is where God resides. We're, we're, we're safe. We're, we're good. God's not going to destroy us. We've got the temple. So as long as we keep the temple in good condition, as long as we show up every once in a while to do our, our religious activity, the temple's kind of like farmer's insurance. It's got us covered. It's our security. The temple is our good luck charm. The temple is our trump card. The temple is our functional savior. See, here's a definition. Here's what I'm giving you as a definition for a functional savior. A functional savior is something other than God that gives us peace or confidence or makes us feel as if God owes us something. And they're looking and thinking, you know what? We've got the temple. This is where God resides. That makes us safe. God's not going to destroy us. He's not going to send us into activity because we've got the temple. And what are they doing? They are trusting in the temple rather than God. And here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. God never asked them to trust in the temple. God never asked them to trust in their religious activity. He asked them, he said, he said trust in me. Trust, he says in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. God's saying, I didn't ask you to trust in the temple. I asked you to trust in me. So the temple isn't your security. I'm your security. Now, hold on a second. Because I know we're sitting in our pew today and we're like, hey, this is 2022. I don't think any of us in here are saying, I'm good because I trust in the temple. I don't think any of us are doing that. But this is where I'm going to ask us to be a little transparent. I'm going to ask us to be honest. Have some honesty between you and the Lord. What is it that you put your trust in other than God? What is it that makes you feel that you are right or deserving of God's blessing or his protection in your life? Let me ask you this way. What makes you better or more deserving than another Christian or another person? This is where it gets real. Well, God, God, you owe me because I I go to church. I help plant the church. I've been here from the beginning. God, you... You gotta look out for me, right? Well, 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 God, I've been a Christian for, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. God, I followed you all this time. Of course, you're gonna take care of me. Of course, of course, of course, you're gonna protect me because I followed you for all these years. God, 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 my family, 
Do you know what family I'm from? We have done so much for the kingdom of God. Do you know who my, do you know who my parents are, God? Of course you're going to take care of me because of all they've done for you. God, God, I served. God, I served at VBS this week. I wrangled all those kids. God, you better bless me for that. God, God, I'm, I'm a Republican. I stand for those family values, God. You gotta, you gotta look out for me. Well, God, God, I, I, I'm a Democrat. I, I'm a Democrat. I look out for the poor or the downtrodden. You see, this is where, if we're gonna be honest, there are some of these things that we hold on to and we point to to say, look, look, God, look what I've done for you. God, this is what I am trusting for security or for your blessing because I've done these things for you. These aren't bad things. They're not bad things. But what did God ask of us? Did he ask us to put our trust in our church, in our spiritual activity, in our politics, in our family, in our resources, in our accomplishments. No, he asked us to put his trust in him, to trust the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all he asked. What I'm asking you to do, what I'm asking me to do is can we just be honest to say our human nature, man, we, we still love God, but our human nature our sinful nature is to take our eyes off of him and onto these tangible things that we can accomplish in our own strength. Things that we can have some control and manipulation over. That our human nature is not to, to trust God. Our human nature is to trust these other things. And this is the battle that the people in Jeremiah's day were dealing with. I think this is a battle, if we're going to be honest, to us in our day, we deal with as well. And it's so easy for us to be blind to us doing it. In fact, let me share some transparency with you. Man, we started this church planning process, uh, this September is going to be 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we started this church planning process, and it has been awesome. We have seen God do some awesome things that we are just blown away by. But you know, if I'm going to be honest, <laughs> church planning's hard. We have been through some stuff been hard. And if I'm going to be honest with you, there's going to be times when I'm like, God, God, look at all the stuff that we've been through. And look, God, I'm still faithful. Look, God, I'm still here. I'm still showing up. I'm still teaching your word. I'm, I'm coming every week to, to serve you, God. And if I'm going to be honest, there's a part of me that says, God, shouldn't you be blessing that? God, shouldn't we be blessed because of how faithful we've been? Shouldn't you be 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 bestowing blessing upon blessing on us because we're here every week and we're faithful. See, if I'm going to be honest, there's times I trust in my faithfulness rather than me trusting in God. What is it for you? What do you trust in rather than God? God, God, I've been a good parent. I've been a great parent. I've done the best, God. So my kids, they should turn out good, right? I should be able to count on you blessing my kids and making them live right because I've done everything so good, right? The right schooling, the right home life, the right devotions. God, I've been to church all these years. That means, God, you've got to protect me from anything bad happening. And my life should be easy because I've, I've walked with you. 
God, I put money in the offering. I support the ministry. So God, shouldn't you bless me financially and shouldn't my financial situation look better than it is? In fact, I remember years ago, uh, early in my ministry days, we, our leadership team made some decisions on things we were going to do. And I remember two people came up to me. One of them said, hey, you know what? You need to listen to me because I went to Bible college. I went to Bi- you need to listen to me because I went to Bible college and I've got the right answer. Another person came up to me and said, hey, hey, you need to listen to me and do what I say because I've got three times more experience than you. Now, let me clarify Bible college is amazing. Experience is necessary. But when those people came to me, you know, what I, you know what I heard? I heard, I'm trusting in my Bible college experience. I'm trusting in my experience and not in the Lord. This is where it's not that we don't believe in God. It's not that we don't trust God. Just, it is so easy for us to take our trust off of God and put it onto these other things. Can we acknowledge that? Because listen, we might be able to deceive, our, deceive ourselves. We might be able to deceive others. Look, I'm trusting God, but God knows our heart. He sees right through it. He knows when we are trusting the wrong thing. He knew in Jeremiah's day, and I'm going to guess if he knew back then, I'm going to guess that he knows in our day as well when we are not trusting him with all of our heart and when we are trusting in other things for our security or for our blessing or for God's hand in our life. His second issue, God's second issue that he had with the people is they were unloving to the world around them. That's what it says in verse 5. He says, if you, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, and do not oppress the sojourner and the fathers and the widows. And you do not shed innocent blood. You do not go after other gods to your own harm. See, what God is saying is, this is what you want. This is what God wants. And so if you, if you, if you change your ways because you're currently not doing these things, this is a little bit of indictment saying you need to change your ways and do these things because you're not doing them right now. Now here... Here's something I think is important for the church to hear. Genuine faith. A genuine faith is not just concerned with our religious practices of going to, the, going to church, of reading the Bible, of, of making sacrifices, of, of our righteous living, of, of trying to follow all the commandments. Genuine faith results in a profound love and concern for those around us, especially those that are weakest among us. The orphans, the widows, the immigrants. In fact, in fact remember, remember when Jesus, one of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, hey Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Come on, if, if, if my faith is all about keeping the rules, what's the most important? Remember what God said? Number one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think that means that we trust him. And number two is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, these two things are inseparable. They belong together. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. And let's just be honest, your neighbor, your neighbor, it's not the Johnsons down the street, you know, the easy people. Your neighbor are those challenging people in our community. The people that are a little bit broken, the people that have needs, the people that make things awkward for us. 
See, I think one of the dangers in Christianity, both in Jeremiah's day as well as in our day, is that we sit in our holy huddles. We sit in our Christian bubbles. And we go through our religious motions that make us feel really good and give us a lot of confidence. Look, God, look at all I'm doing for you. I'm, I'm obeying you. While we have this insensitivity to the issues all around us, indifferent to the suffering around us. In fact, I think, I think it was in James, the, the half-brother of Jesus. James 1.27, he says, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, is to follow all the rules. No, he didn't say that. He said, pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to take care of the orphans and the widows and their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. You see, Tim Keller says this. He says, in Jesus and the prophets, critique self robs <laughs> And Jesus and the prophets critique self-righteous religion is always marked by an insensitivity to, social, to issues of social justice, while a true and genuine faith is always marked by a profound concern for the poor and the marginalized. Number one, God's issue with the people is they were trusting in things other than him for their security. Number two, they were unloving to the world around them. And number three, they were practicing hypocritical worship. Starting in verse eight, he says, Behold, you keep trusting these deceptive words to no avail. Will you continue to steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? Will you continue to do these things? Then come and stand before me in the house that is called by my name in the temple. Will you continue to do these things and then stand in the temple and say, look, we are delivered. Only to continue doing these things, these abominations. Has this house that is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's some pretty strong words right there. The people of God, they're doing whatever they wanted, whatever felt right to them, breaking commandments at will. But then look, they show up at church on Sunday. They show up at the temple. They go through the religious motions. And they say, well, God, God's a God of grace. He's a God of love. I'm forgiven. I can live like hell Monday through Saturday, but I'll show up on Sunday with my Sunday best and live like heaven on Sunday. God forgives me, right? In fact, God says, you've made my church, you've made my temple a den of robbers. A place where criminals come and gather to hide out so they don't get caught for what they're doing. I don't think that's the way it works. In fact, it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. See, if we have genuine faith in God, it means we can't go on blatantly sinning and then show up on Sunday and say, look, I'm forgiven. Now, let me clarify, that does not mean that we cannot struggle. God never expects perfection from us. But there's, there's completely different attitudes when we say, hey, I'm going to go sin, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to live my way, and then show up on Sunday and just expect God to bless me. 
That's a completely different attitude than somebody who says, hey, I'm trying to follow God. I'm struggling through some stuff. I'm wrestling with it. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to pursue God. It's a completely different attitude. In fact, one of the things we say here at Restoration Church is we're a place that celebrates progress rather than perfection. Because I tell you, in most churches, we're really good at doing that. Where we've got junk going on in our lives, where we show up on Sunday, we put our Sunday best on. We smile. How you doing? Good. God's, God's blessing me, brother. Yeah, good to see you. No, I don't think God blesses that. I don't think that God wants from us. God wants progress. Which means we might come in and be like, yeah, I, I had a horrible week. I did this and this and this, and I'm struggling. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress. Where when you, when you can be honest with where you are today and say, man, I got to work on this. I need some help with this. Listen, that means next week can be a little bit better. That's that process of sanctification where we're continuing to grow more and more like Jesus. No, we're looking for progress, not perfection. I don't even know where I'm at in my notes. Oh, here we go. Because of this, God's got these three issues with the people. They're not trusting him for the security. They are unloving to the people around them. They are living in hypocrisy. This is what he says in verse 11. Behold, I've seen it myself, declares the Lord. Sometimes we think God doesn't see all that stuff. No, this is what he says. Behold, I've seen it myself. Go to my place in Shiloh where my name first dwelt, and you will see what I did because of the evil of the people. Now, because you have done these things, when I spoke to you, you persistently did not listen. When I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the temple. I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and the place that I've given to you and your fathers. I will do to the temple as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight just as I did to the northern kingdom. I hear this and you know what God is saying? You think it's okay to live like this? You think it's okay to live in this way? To trust in these functional saviors? To have no concern for the oppressed around us? To blatantly go on sinning? God says, you think you can live like this? He says, go look at Shiloh. Now, if you're not familiar with Shiloh, Shiloh was a place when, when God's people entered in the promised land, Shiloh was a place where the tabernacle first resided. This is where the presence of God, this, this, is, this is where Shiloh was a place where people went to worship and commune with God. But because of their ongoing sin, God allowed the Philistines to come in and destroy the tabernacle and to take the Ark of the Covenant, a place that literally housed the, the presence of God. He allowed them to take it out of the nation of Israel. So Shiloh is wiped off. It is no more. God's saying, listen, you don't think I'm serious about this? I did it once. I'll do it again. I'm not concerned about the outward appearance. I'm not concerned about the temple or the church. I'm concerned about your hearts. And your hearts are not true to me. Now I know for us in here today, we're like Shiloh. Shiloh doesn't have any meaning for us. Shiloh doesn't have any meaning for me. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you to think of somebody in your life. Think of those people that walked with God, lived for him, and then drifted away. Think about those people that shipwrecked their life and their faith. 
You know, I think about friends in this church. Friends that we've loved, friends that we've cried with, friends that we've prayed with, friends that we've fought in the trenches together. With all the potential in the world, And they began trusting those functional saviors, not trusting the Lord with all their heart, blatantly choosing to sin and disobedience. And those people have suffered the the consequences of those decisions. I'm talking about marriages blown up. I'm talking about jobs lost. I'm talking about kids that are going to be impacted for years and years in the future because of these foolish decisions. what God is saying to us today. Look at their example. Look at those examples. God's saying, I did it once. I've done it before, and I'll do it with you because I love you, and I want you to respond and turn from your trusting in other things. I mean, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. You know, as I sat in this text this week, I get it. I get why Jeremiah going and sharing this message, why this would have been difficult on him. Because as a leader, you love your people. You love the church. You love this place. And I know my own heart, how quick I am to turn my trust away from God and onto my religious activity onto my achievements, onto my politics, my wealth, my power, and all these other things. And I'll tell you what, when I think about Shiloh, and I think about those people, it breaks my heart. To think of my friends that are suffering through difficult consequences because they didn't return to the Lord. I think that's why God says, consider Shiloh. Consider those friends of yours. This guy would say, I did it once and I'm not afraid to do it again because I love you and I want you to come back to me. And this is why Jeremiah, this was a hard passage. But you know, there was this tiny bit of hope. And in fact, I want to close with this tiny bit of hope. Jeremiah says in verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Verse 5, If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you, if you love God and love others, verse 7, he says, Then I will let you dwell in this land, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever. God says, Hey, hey, you want to dwell in the land? You want to stay in the land? You want to experience my grace and my blessing and my protection and my peace? How many of you want some of that? You want God's grace and his blessing and his protection and his peace in your life? Here's what he says. God's asking us to amend our ways. He's asking us to repent. In fact, George MacDonald, the provost at Denver Seminary, this is what he said about repentance. Repentance. He said, repentance is not actually a religious word. 
It comes from a culture where people were essentially nomadic. They lived in a world without maps and street signs. And it would be easy to get lost as they're walking through the desert wilderness. He says, so the first step in repentance is when you become aware that you are in a countryside you do not recognize. The first step is to acknowledge and confess that you are going in the wrong direction. The second step is to turn around and go in a different direction. In fact, I think, I think this is a summary for this entire message. (laughs) What was all this rambling about today? Simply that the security and the blessing and the peace that we long for is found in a repentant heart that is trusting fully in God alone. It almost seems so simple. It almost seems too simple. And while I can't say this for, for the people in Jeremiah's day, I can say this is for me and maybe for some of us in here. And so why don't I amend my ways? Why don't I repent and turn around and follow after God? Is it not because that first step of repentance, is that not the most difficult thing for us to do? Is it not the first step of repentance that trips us up? Because it requires that we actually have to acknowledge. We have to confess. I'm trusting in the wrong thing. We have to confess, I'm going in the wrong direction. I don't have it all figured out. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about acknowledging that, I'm like, well, what will people think of me? I'm a pastor. If I repent and acknowledge that I've done something wrong and I'm going in the wrong direction, what will people think of me? I'll lose credibility. Why can't I blame someone else? Oh, it was their fault. It's not my fault. It's their fault. The question is, will we allow pride to prevent us from experiencing the blessing and the peace and the security of God? Repentance is a simple two-step process. Number one, acknowledge we're going the wrong direction. Acknowledge we are trusting in these functional saviors. Number two, turn around. Come back to Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what is it for you this morning? Where is it that you are struggling to place your trust fully in God? What is that functional savior that is the biggest temptation for you? Your experience, your family, your background, how long you've been in the church, uh, your financial background, what is it that you take your eyes off of him and put onto yourself? Would you simply confess that today? Would you confess that today? Would you Say, God, I surrender this. I surrender this to you. Remember, God's not looking for our religious devotion. He's looking for us to trust him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to lean not to our own understanding.
So that's the application today. Would you repent? Would you confess? Would you surrender? And today, would you put your trust and faith in Jesus? Let's pray.